Hello, welcome to another edition of Faith in Politics. This month, we interview the newly instated Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell. Uh, we talked to him about the role of the church in politics and his position on the House of Lords Communication Select Committee, which leads into a great musing on what archaeology might have to say about internet regulation. Stephen was instated as the Archbishop of York on the 9th of July. We recorded this a couple of months ago while he was still Bishop of Chelmsford, but looking forward to his new appointment and the issues we talked about are still very relevant today. So let's have a listen to what Stephen had to say. Bishop Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. At the time of recording, uh, Bishop Stephen is still the uh, Bishop of Chelmsford, but by the time uh, you'll be listening to this, you will have transformed into the new Archbishop of York. Yeah. So one of the things that won't be changing in your new role is that you will continue to sit in the House of Lords. How have you found your experience as a Lord Spiritual? Oh, well, it's, a, it's one of the weird things about being a diocesan bishop in the Church of England. As soon as you become a diocesan bishop, you join the queue to go into the House of Lords. Um, and I think I went in after, I think it was three and a half years, four years, I, I, I went in. And at first I found it quite difficult um, because uh, you're learning a whole new world, a new culture. And because you've got a busy day job, um, the times you can actually go and spend time participating and getting to know what happens is limited. For me, the breakthrough came after a couple of years when I was invited to be part of the House of Lords Select Committee for Communications. And I really, really enjoyed that work. I enjoyed it because it gave me a real focus. Um, it, was a, you know, it was a weekly commitment, so it made the diary planning much easier. But also, I got to know people. Um, and uh, as in all walks of life, uh, relationships are hugely important. And so getting to know people by working alongside them week in, week out, people who weren't bishops and people across the political spectrum, um, made me feel, yeah, made me feel that I belonged, I suppose. Um, had a few mates, um, started to understand more about how things worked and started getting my teeth into some particular issues. And I think that's probably where, I mean, certainly, certainly what the House of Lords is there for. We're there um, to scrutinise and amend uh, different bits of legislation and to deal with the detail and also deal with some of the big expansive issues. Um, but uh, the way we do it is by burrowing down into particular things. And so that enabled me to get my teeth into something uh, and... Uh, yeah, since then I've, I've felt much more a part of the place. You touched on it there as being part of that select committee, but one of the things you've been involved with in the House of Lords is internet regulation. Can you tell us a bit about that and why that was something you wanted to get involved in? Yeah, well, suppose the truth is it wasn't to begin with something I wanted to get involved in. I, I, I was invited to be on, on the... Um, select committee for communication and to begin with we were it was the time of the charter renewal for the bbc and that was the issue we were looking at and the way the committees tend to work um if there isn't a pressingly urgent thing to look at such as the, the renewal of the bbc charter 
then there's a kind of free reign to say, so what should we look at next? And there were other members of the committee who felt the whole business of, of the digital environment and how we inhabit it and how we could perhaps regulate it was one of the big, it is one of the big issues of our time. And so uh, I, I found myself getting drawn into that world. And I think, I think kind of educated and radicalized by it. Um, so it was a real learning experience for the first year. Um, but then the committee I was on produced successive reports. I mean, the person you really need to interview her, she's, 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 not, a, she's not a Christian, but she's somebody who's very sympathetic to the Christian worldview is Baroness Kidron. Um, uh, she's an amazing person and we sort of became friends. I've learned so much from her. Um, and, uh, and she was the one who I think more than anybody led the committee into these areas. And I found myself at first following um, but then learning and then, you know, in, in a small way, taking a bit of a lead on this in the church and, uh, and really seeing the moral and ethical issues that were at stake here. Um, and so, yeah, it's become an important issue for me. The, the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted and accentuated a lot of the problems that were already present in our society. Do you think that online safety, internet regulation is one of those areas? And what would you like to see done to make the internet a safer place? Well, I think the, the first thing, which I think is, I think it's a battle that we're slowly beginning to win. But I think the first thing is to actually try to decide what sort of place is the internet? Because we've tended to treat it in a way that we wouldn't treat any other public space. In fact, the very idea that it's a public space is probably the most important philosophical battle to win. Um, you know, so for instance, um, if uh, I go to another public space, I know none of us can go to public spaces at the moment, but if you remember back to those days where you would go to, let's think of something, a, a bar, a restaurant, a cinema, or, or a, a park with your children, um, you, you rightly have expectations about what behaviours are acceptable and what are not acceptable. And there are consequences for you and for others if you cross those lines. Some of those are, are properly regulated, like cinemas, you know, so there's a coding system for films. So if I take my family to a film, there's a coding system which will indicate to me the kind of content that I'm likely to see. And that's extremely useful. And we all recognize and abide by those guidelines and rules. Um, we've allowed the internet to develop without that sense that this is a public space um, where there are codes of conduct uh, which are acceptable or not acceptable, which we all need to give our consent to and live by. And so that for me has been the really, really important step change that we're beginning to see that, that I've noticed in government responses and white papers over the last two years. I remember I asked a question quite directly of the minister in the House of Lords. Um, uh, do you consider the, I can't remember the exact question, the wording, but it was something like, do you consider the internet to be a public space? And the, and the minister replied, yes. Now that yes was hugely significant. Um, because up until that point, I mean, the, the internet providers themselves, the Facebooks and um, Twitters and the like, they like to call themselves platforms. Um, 
And the thing about a platform is you can kind of say, well, we're just a platform. If somebody stands on the platform and behaves inappropriately, well, we're really sorry about that, but it's not really our problem. Um, uh, and if you say, no, well, you're not a platform, you're a public space with all the responsibilities that go with being a public space, then you can begin to develop a set of principles by which we might inhabit that space and also a series of um, constraints and signals about what we should expect when we enter that space. Um, and it's been that sort of principle-based approach to regulation that has been the work of the committee. And I was really glad to be part of it. And, um, you know, sometimes the internet providers themselves say all oh, this is oh it's far too difficult you know we couldn't do this but i don't think we should believe them you know those clever algorithms you know, we all we all notice it don't we on amazon or wherever that you you know if you if you buy something on amazon we should try to avoid buying things on amazon if we can but at the moment i guess we're all using it so if you buy something on amazon it, it tells you if you like that you may like this and the thing is, they're usually right. You know, their algorithms are very clever. They know an awful lot about us. It's been said that, you know, that data is the new oil in our, in our economy. And these companies are mining our data. Um, so they know an awful lot about us. And they're very good at predicting what we might want or what we might do. Well, those clever algorithms, which are so good at selling us stuff, could be used to design a different sort of much safer um, internet. Um, and that's not about, you know, people think, oh dear, dear, this is censorship. No, no, it's not censorship. It is simply applying to the internet the same principles that we apply to every single other public space that we inhabit. Um, but because this is a virtual public space, we've allowed it to develop without the regulations that we would expect everywhere else. That's a long answer, but as you'll kind of pick up, I think it's a really important issue for Christians to be involved with. You know, we should be very, very concerned, um, not, not just about the things that children can pick up far too easily. You know, you could never make the world a safe place, but you could make it a lot safer than it is. It wouldn't be that difficult to do but it requires some political will. But it's not just the pressing issue of, um, you know, and the statistics from, say, the Children's Society are frightening about um, um, what children are seeing and accessing on the internet at a very young age. Um, but it's not just that. Um, it, it is, I think, a real question about what kind of world do we want to live in? Because the digital world is the world that we're all living in now. Um, there's not two worlds, one world called the digital world, and you know, one online and one offline. This is the one world, it's all connected. And in this pandemic, we're discovering that more than ever. We're, we're living our lives digitally in ways we never have before. Um, so the image I have is of, in the 1950s, I think it was the 1950s, that it, it, fluoride was pr proven to be really, really good for your dental health. Um, so what did um, the government do they put fluoride in the water supply and and ever since they did that dental health has been massively massively improved so i want to say to the government let's put some fluoride in the internet it, it could be done you, you could design it differently you could regulate it you could require these companies 
to do now it requires great cross-party collaboration great international collaboration but hey as christians we should set the bar of our expectations high this is one of the big ethical issues of our day uh, I, I think it's a battle that we're slowly slowly beginning to win so you've certainly been very willing in the past to speak out about social issues uh, nuclear weapons brexit as well as internet regulation Will your new role as Archbishop of York affect the frequency or the nature of how you speak out on such issues? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I, the, of course, the honest answer is I don't really know because I haven't started yet. Um, but I, I've noticed, I mean, this is hardly, a, hardly an original observation, but I've noticed over the years that when Christian leaders, or, or, or for that matter, any faith leader, um, speaks out about something and politicians and people agree with them, then they always pat them on the back and say how good it is that we're speaking out on ethical and moral issues. When we say something they disagree with, they say it's outrageous that you're meddling in politics. Um, however, I think for me, the person who occupies and inhabits the role with the opportunity to speak into these things, for me, it is about uh, what are the requirements of the gospel uh, in terms of how we order our world and live our lives and inhabit this planet. Um, the gospel absolutely demands and requires us to speak into that because the Christian faith is about the whole of life, because the Christian faith is about changing the world and ordering the world as God would have us order it. It's a, it is a, a beautiful but also a moral and ethical vision for how we live together. Um, so you simply can't not speak into that. And that is true of every Christian in any position they find themselves in. So I don't really see there's any difference being Archbishop of York to being the person sitting in the pew on a Sunday morning. Uh, you know, take, take the other you know, the, the big pressing issue of our day, how we inhabit the planet itself in a sustainable way. Um, we, we simply cannot not speak about that. And that's true of every Christian. Now, the only difference about being the Archbishop of York is um, it's likely that if I say something, it's going to get a bit more publicity and therefore may also get a bit more flack um, from people who don't like this and don't want to hear it but I've always tried uh, to speak about the things which it which I believe the gospel requires me to speak about and I will carry on trying to do that. Finally a question we ask all of our guests if you could ask one question at Prime Minister's Questions what would it be? Yes, well, you, you gave me advance notice of this one. Thank you. Um, uh, and I've really, I've spent more time worrying about this one in the last 24 hours than all the other questions um, as to what would I ask. And I, I think what I'd ask, I, I, haven't, I haven't finally tuned it like you would have to, as I know in the House of Lords, when you ask a question, you don't have long, you need to have your question finally tuned. But I think it would be something about, well, I've got two thoughts. One would be about, the reform of parliament um but i think i might hone it down let that be a supplementary i think i'd hone it down to something about tone um i uh, and this is not about any one 
prime minister or for that matter leader of the opposition but uh, i am dismayed by the sort of bear pit yarboo i i know they all say it's good fun and they all go to the bars afterwards and it's all much more friendly i mean i've seen that but i but i i think i i am dismayed by the the rudeness the adversarial combat of parliament of course we must have robust debate of course we must disagree um but i i i wish we could learn to disagree a robust debate with much more obvious evident graciousness um because i don't think it's the best way of 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 doing business and i would like to see the way that we do our business in 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 parliament prizing consensus a bit more uh and and i don't know how we would achieve that but i think over the if if, if we look back do you remember brexit that was uh, something we talked about for a few years um you know i think one of the great failures of the brexit debate after the vote in 2016 was that we didn't try a cross party national government approach to this um uh, and i think if we had we'd have got a lot further a lot more quickly and we would have spared ourselves some of the divisions that grew up very quickly in those few years which which still remain unhealed so yes i think i would ask a question about um what do you really think about the adversarial way in which our parliament conducts its business and do you think a consensual way is possible bishop steven thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and may god bless you in your new role thank you very much great to hear from archbishop steven there i'm really glad that he's been involved in these conversations around internet regulation because i think there's a lot of easy to find research on how churches can use social media as a tool in part of their church life and their mission and there's quite a bit out there on how christians should conduct themselves online uh, but there's a lot less about what our faith might have to say about what social media sites should do or what go- how governments should regulate them rather than just what we should do with social media so that's what we're going to base our musing on so yeah when we think about what the bible has to say around social media obviously there's nothing very clear cut in the bible about social media but there's ways in which communities have conversations with one another how the public space functions and how christians engage with that that i think has something to speak into this situation perhaps most um, obviously is in Acts when we see people like Paul engaging with different philosophers in the marketplaces and this being a space of conversation about what society should look like and the big ideas of the day and that to us might seem quite weird I don't think many of us would feel very comfortable with say people who are street preaching or um, sharing ideas in the middle of a town centre when you're trying to go about um, your daily business. And that's because that isn't really the space that we do that nowadays. So it's a question of where does that, those conversations happen because they're still important to society. And I think I would argue that that happens on social media. We see people having those big questions around society and around life on internet platforms. Yeah, and I guess that speaks into this 
line between what's a platform and what's a public space. And I think we kind of discussed that a platform is when people come to you if they want to, they kind of subscribe to what you have to say. Whereas a public square, you don't really have a choice. You're just putting your ideas out there and subjecting to others what you think, whether they like it or not. Now, Paul is obviously not, he's not giving a lecture series and uh, handing out tickets for people if they want to come and hear what he says. He's going to where the people are and he's telling them what they think. And I think on Facebook and on Twitter, when you friend people on Facebook, you do it because you know them, not because you're subscribing to their political thoughts. It's not like a blog that you're going to and you're going to keep coming back to. You're going to be subjected to their thoughts, whether you like it or not, once you're friends with them. And I think that's the case for it being a public space rather than a platform. Yeah, I think sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable with this, the idea of social media playing that role. But it's important that we do recognise it as this public space. I think particularly during the lockdown, we've seen how responsive people have been to ideas that have been shared on social media, where um, I guess particularly Twitter has been a place where people are very much having big conversations around how do we protect the NHS, how do we protect the economy, how do our children engage with this issue and how do they still get their education and often there's been campaigns that have been running on social media that have very quickly had a response from the government and we've seen change in policy responding to that so I think it is important that we recognise the role of this space as an area to critique policies, critique ideas and offer solutions and really have a good debate in society around some of these big questions. Yeah I think increasingly people use social media as a news source especially young people it's their primary source of news and you see that newspapers are regulated which isn't uh, applied to social media sites as well. So I think if we recognise this as a space of public deliberation it's also important to consider whose voices are being heard in this space because when the internet first arose it was thought of as this really egalitarian space a place um, where democracy would have ultimate freedom, where there was no hierarchy, no centralisation, that it was open to everyone and there'd be no sort of monopoly or authority there. Um, and it kind of seems quite a utopian ideal. Um, and maybe in the early days that happened to some extent. We've seen the Arab Springs, that uh, social media, media played a massive part in shaping the, the power dynamics in various countries across uh, the Middle East. But in recent times, those those changes have led to governments that actually have become more totalitarian and have used social media for their for their benefit. And actually social media is this tool rather than necessarily pro producing democracy. And we also see it in like the digital divide. So Twitter users in the UK and in America are very much part of the educated elite. They're more like a lot less likely to be on low salaries. They're more likely to be white and they're more likely to be male. Um, all of which are very similar to the power dynamics offline. So I think it's important we don't just think of social media as this really open free space and recognise that some of the inhibitors to people in public debate offline are the same online. Yeah, I think this idea that social media isn't this utopian ideal already is quite important because a lot of the people who are against internet regulation or stricter internet regulation are against it because they think it's a bastion of free speech where anyone can say what they want 
um, and be heard when in reality there's already so many conditions which mean a lot of people don't get heard on social media and that if you have money and influence then your voice is going to be amplified on social media more than others already and the social media sites they use algorithms which boost posts which have higher engagement they can carry paid ads and things so social media sites already influence uh, what you see on your news feed they just don't use whether it's harmful or offensive or untrue as one of the metrics by which they decide that another thing i've been reflecting on uh, with relation to the bible is this idea of self-regulation which is basically what social media sites have already and i don't think that self-regulation is a biblical ideal whatsoever jesus doesn't say you know what humankind you've got great capacity for goodness and also great capacity for evil so i'm just going to trust you to do what's best for the kingdom god gave us laws jesus gives us teachings because we have an inclination to sin particularly when it benefits us to do so facebook and others have certain interests that would be served by not doing more so even if they genuinely want to make the internet a safer place there will be things that are holding them back, which is why external regulation is needed to counterbalance the inclination to selfishness. Now, I'm not a believer in, in total depravity, but I do think that we as individuals and therefore companies need rules that we don't just make up ourselves in order to combat our inclination to sin. Yeah, and I think that's particularly relevant to social media because in society we have these almost societal regulation where if I say something offensive to you I will see that you're hurt by that or I'll see the way other people respond to that um, negatively whereas doing it online there's a barrier up that kind of prevents us from seeing the consequences of our actions in the same way so that that regulation from outside perhaps is even more essentially in that in that environment. Yeah and one of the questions which comes up when we think about regulation that should be imposed on social media companies it is what material should be taken down and the UK government's uh, proposed regulatory framework would absolutely require that illegal content stuff like revenge porn for instance would have to be taken down as speedily as possible but it would allow social media companies to simply state what other content they think is unacceptable and then the external regulator will just make sure that they are applying that rule consistently so if social media sites are indeed public spaces, then what might our faith have to say beyond illegality is unacceptable in public spaces? I'm not sure what the outcome of that question would be, but I think it's a space where our faith could speak into what is acceptable in a public space, whether that's off, offline or online. One of those things that many people think is unacceptable is when untruths, outright untruths are posted on social media. Uh, and I've been thinking about this phrase we see in the Bible, that the truth will set you free. Now, up until now, social media sites have largely resisted widespread taking down of disinformation, partly because it's hard to develop an exact criteria of what counts as disinformation, but partly in fear of infringing on individual rights of freedom of speech. But what I think the Bible might have to say into this is that if people are using their freedom of speech to spread disinformation, then that in turn infringes on the freedom of others to make informed judgments, particularly around elections and politics. Where a biblical idea of freedom, truth is at the center. 
much more so than simply the ability to say whatever you want on any platform expecting no repercussions. Yeah, so I guess we would be fairly confident that there should be some level of regulation happening on social media of the internet. And perhaps the bigger question is, as you pointed out, um, what, what this regulation should encompass and how it should be implemented. Those are our thoughts. Thank you for listening to our monthly meeting. We always like to give you an action to go away with on the podcast, and today we've got two of those for you. One of the issues that Bishop Stephen has spoken out on in the past is around nuclear weapons, and JPIT have got a campaign around this at the moment. So JPIT helped produce a report called Banks, Pensions and Nuclear Weapons Investing in Change, which outlines the extent of private financing of nuclear weapons. And we've ranked uh, a number of the biggest banks and pension providers in the UK on their policy, practice, and transparency related to their investments in nuclear weapons. So if you want to know whether your bank or pension provider is invested in nuclear weapons producing companies, I'd encourage you to check this campaign out and you can write to your financial institution and request a change in policy. So if you want to find out more, you can go to www moneyoutofnukes.wordpress.co.uk. Do get involved in that. Another campaign we have running at JPIT at the moment is the Keep KitKat Fair Trade campaign. So Nestle have recently announced that KitKat will no longer be fair trade, um, which has huge implications for those who are growing the um, cocoa for the, their products. So if you want to, you can get involved in that by heading to the JPIT website and looking at the Keep Kat, KitKat fair trade campaign. There's a tongue twist for that one, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you for listening to Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, the Church of Scotland, and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. We hope you'll join us again next time. To close, we have a final prayer from James Appleby, our colleague at JPEG. God of freedom, we thank you for our opportunities to engage in the public space. We thank you for the freedom to challenge ideas, policies and situations that are unjust. We pray for those around the world who are living in fear of how their words might be used against them. God of truth, we thank you for those in pursuit of truth in the public space. We pray for those at risk of the lies and discrimination from misinformation. We pray for those who are isolated, whose voices cannot be heard in the public space, that we would hear the quieter voice. Amen.